All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming. Um, again, just to reiterate, if you've if you've been here or if you've not, I think this is at this point four weeks into it. I'm comfortable enough to to sum things up pretty succinctly, uh, as opposed to the, the kind of rambling introductions in the past. Uh, the theme I wanted to to mess with, and then fully developed it today and, and kind of close up was that when we experience loss, and I was careful to say from the outset, I didn't necessarily mean tragedy in the sense of you know, death of a loved one or something like that, although that could be inclusive, that what we're dealing with always is the end of something that has shaped us, has defined us, has given us meaning, uh, and has been a part of our identity. And that we in our, um, to, to kind of jump to some very basic categories in our sinful nature, have a natural tendency to construct uh, identities apart from God, but that in keeping with being made in the image of God, we desire to create little gods. So even if we're rejecting the God, we are finding some other God to serve, to worship, to identify with, to give us definition. And so this is kind of constantly the circle we run around in. And that uh, when, we, when we deal with loss, and, and my initial examples were, um, hence the, the title of the class, were uh, the, the, the shape of Southern culture at the end of the Civil War, or, or perhaps when we find that uh, you know, our resumes, in the case of education or, or life experience, aren't worth what we thought they were worth. And that's certainly uh, a, a problem today in today's economy, that we have desperately tried to define ourselves in, in a way that ultimately proved to, to fail. And so from the outset, that was, that was where I wanted to go and um, want to continue in that theme for, for a bit and then, <clears throat> sorry, allergies, and then uh, come back to, to the gospel as the, the cure for that, uh, for that malaise uh, and, and for that sense of loss and despair and grief. So... Uh, for anybody who's been here or, or hasn't, any any thoughts that kind of have maybe carried over um, that may kind of stir the pot a little bit before we get going? Well, two two examples I've, I found um, that are kind of historical and biographical uh, about our tendency to construct forms of identity for ourselves and how that ultimately lets us down. Um, the first humorous, um, the, the second much more tragic. Uh, the first, and if you're a, a child of the 60s, I hope this isn't offensive, um, it's an example from Tom Wolfe uh, in an essay he wrote called The Great Unlearning. Uh, Tom Wolfe, the author of uh, A Man in Full, uh, Bonfire of the Vanities. Um, it's an essay he wrote called The Great Unlearning, which appeared in a collection of nonfiction he did called Hooking Up, which is about what it sounds like. Um, and so The Great Unlearning was uh, an essay he wrote about his experience as a journalist in San Francisco during the 1960s. In 1968, in San Francisco, I came across a curious footnote to the hippie movement. At the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, there were doctors treating diseases no living doctor had ever encountered before. Diseases that had disappeared so long ago they had never even picked up Latin names. Diseases such as the mange, the grunge, the itch, the twitch, the thrush, the scroff, the rot. And how was it that they had now returned? It had to do with the fact that thousands of young men and women had migrated to San Francisco 
to live communally in what I think history will record as one of the most extraordinary religious fevers of all time. The hippies sought nothing less than to sweep aside all codes and restraints of the past and start from zero. At one point, the novelist Ken Kessie, leader of, the com of a commune called the Merry Pranksters, organized a pilgrim to Stonehenge with the idea of returning to Anglo-Saxon's point zero, which he figured was Stonehenge, and heading out all over again to do it better. Among the codes and restraints that people in the commune swept aside, quite purposely, were those that said, were those that said you shouldn't use other people's toothbrushes, or sleep on other people's mattresses without changing the sheets, or, as was more likely, without using any sheets at all, or that you and five other people shouldn't drink from the same bottle of Shasta or take tokes from the same cigarette. And now, in 1968, they were relearning the laws of hygiene by getting the mange, the grunge, the itch, the twitch, the thrush, the scroff, the rot. So, yeah, I think so. Um, any, any comments on that? Slides of all these. Uh, you know, that, that would have been good. That would have been good. I think Anglo-Saxon um, uh, 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 English words just convey the grossness of it a lot better than the Latin. Probably so. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> I, I pulled that out. As a teacher, I always pull that out whenever students want to know why we have rules about certain things. You know, why, why can't my hair be, you know, whatever? I'm like, well... If we, if we do this, and I don't always believe what I'm saying, but, you know, it's a slippery slope argument, and I give them that, and they're like, well, okay. Um, but I think that's kind of a, a humorous example, and I'm not trying to make any kind of, I, well, yeah, sort of am, I'm not trying to make a broader political or social point about the 60s, um, but, but that when we try to construct our own identities, there is a very real risk that they fail us, um, and it's humorous from, from a distance, but if you're one of these people who gets one of these diseases, or, you know, perhaps an STD, which was something that's a little bit more identifiable. I mean, we don't really talk about somebody, oh, they came down with the scroff. Um, but, you know, some of the other things that came out of that, all from a desire to reconstruct a brand new identity. Um, there's something problematic there. And again, that's a little bit apart from religion. Otherwise, you have to start talking about, you know, religious ethics and moral codes and that sort of thing, and I'm not really trying to get into that today. There's, there's obviously a conversation to be had. But there's an identity that was, that, that was constructed that very much failed the people who clung to that identity. Um, and so that's, that, that's kind of a humorous example. Uh, a more serious example that I ran across the other day, um, uh, I'm reading this book by Paul Johnson, a British historian called Intellectuals, um, and it is... Uh, series of essays about famous intellectuals in Western civilization. And um, usually they're portrayed in a pretty negative light. Um, it's, it's kind of a negative biography. Um, here's how their ideas misled them, did them wrong, did other people wrong, how they were dangerous and that sort of thing. Um, and agree or disagree with it. He, he came across an interesting, um, there's an interesting quote about Ernest Hemingway, in a chapter on Hemingway that, that frankly portrays Hemingway in a very, very negative light. But I think uh, as he closed, dealing with Hemingway's suicide, he, he was insightful in noting that for Hemingway, there was a longing for death because his identity had really failed him. That he had sought to portray himself as one thing, and when it didn't work, that's where things had kind of kicked in. So I'm going to read this, and, and hopefully this will um, provide a little bit of, um, of context. It's 
It's not too terribly long, so let's go with it. Why did Hemingway long for death? It is by no means unusual among writers. His contemporary, Evelyn Waugh, a writer in English of comparable stature during this period, likewise longed for death. But Waugh was not an intellectual. He did not think he could refashion the rules of life out of his own head, but submitted to the traditional discipline of his church, dying of natural causes five years later. Hemingway created his own code based on honor, truth, loyalty. He failed it on all three counts, and it failed him. More seriously, perhaps, he felt he was failing his art. Hemingway had many grievous faults, but there was one thing he did not lack, artistic integrity. It shines like a beacon through his whole life. He set himself the task of creating a new way of writing English and fiction and succeeded. It was one of the salient events in the history of our language and is now an inescapable part of it. He devoted to this task immense resources of creative skill, energy, and patience. That in itself was difficult. But far more difficult, as he discovered, was to maintain the high creative standards he had set himself. This became apparent in the mid-1930s and added to his habitual depression. From then on, his few successful stories were aberrations in a long downward slide. If Hemingway had been less of an artist, it might not have mattered to him as a man. He would simply have written and published inferior novels, as many writers do. But he knew when he wrote below his best, and the knowledge was intolerable to him. He sought the help of alcohol, even in working hours. He was first observed with a drink, a rum St. James, in front of him while riding in the 1920s. This custom, rare at first, became intermittent, then invariable. By the 1940s, he was said to wake at 4.30 a.m., usually starts drinking right away and writes standing up with a pencil in one hand and a drink in another. The effect on his work was exactly as might be expected, disastrous. An experienced editor can always tell when a piece of writing has been produced with the aid of alcohol, however gifted the author may be. Hemingway began to produce large quantities of unpublishable material, or material he felt did not reach the minimum standard he set himself. Some was published nonetheless and was seen to be inferior, even a parody of his earlier work. There were one or two, one or two exceptions, notably The Old Man in the Sea, though there was an element of self-parody in that, too. But the general level was low and falling, and Hemingway's awareness of his inability to recapture his genius, let alone develop it, accelerated the spinning circle of depression and drink. He was a man killed by his art, and his life holds a lesson all intellectuals need to learn, that art is not enough. And so I think there um, we go from a, curi a curious, humorous example with Tom Wolfe to a much more serious example that, that Paul Johnson diagnoses with Hemingway. And Johnson is, a, is an English Catholic, so he is writing from a somewhat religious perspective. That the standards we set for ourselves in, in wrapping up an identity and creating a a, a, a persona for ourselves uh, is flawed fundamentally. And in our own lives, it may not lead to what it led to with Hemingway in terms of um, excessive drinking and ultimately early death at our own hands. But it, it will fail us, and it will leave us with a sense of loss. And at that point, there, we're, we're faced with, um, and I read a quote from a Paul's All Sermon, we're faced with that risky question of how can I be justified if all of the other ways of justifying myself have not worked? And, and again, it, it, there's not a lot, you know, 
we talk about Mockingbird Ministries, there's not a lot original to say, um, and so I, I know I'm not saying anything original uh, in the sense. Um, but again, Paul, Paul Zoll made that point in the, in the sermon I was referencing. Um, that is a that is perhaps the riskiest question uh, we we could ask, and that certainly in the case of art and literature, it's a, it's a question that lots and lots of people have have pondered and perhaps even obsessed over. Uh, how can I how can I be justified? Um, and so. I'll kind of pause there and see if there's anything anybody wants to to add or, or throw in there. And I'm thinking of Matt. Great piece on the Hemingway stuff. I mean, I did this too. I mean, you go out to the polls, like with the Tom Wolfe or the Hemingway, where you know, he sort of you know lives life all the way out there. Right. You know, he's a man of notoriety with art and all that. But for a lot of us in the middle, you know, self-justification for lack of a better word. Kind of works, right? You know? Um, you know, in the sense that the tick, tick, tick of life keeps going, and you have flashes of good periods and kind of bads, but not, you know, the the Hemingway lows. Right. That's just kind of what I'm thinking of you know, with Paul, the disease part. What happens when other attempts at justification don't work? I right. A lot of us don't actually get there to the point where we really clearly see by experience that it doesn't work right. rationally. I think experience, a lot of us are spared that, that bottom. Yeah. Not everybody, but a lot of us are. Does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. That's just what I'm thinking of. Talking to and, I, and I think that's the, the and I, I use this word cautiously because it's not my position. Pastorally, I think there's a danger in overemphasizing the extremities because most people could sit in a pew or sit in a class say, you know, I've had bad days, but that that's, you know, I've not been through that. I think Paul Walker hit on that well. And sermon he preached here, and this was before Lori and I came to the Advent, but he's preaching on uh, Second John, or Second Chapter John rather, when Jesus turns to Andrew and Peter and says, "What are you looking for?" And um, it's just on the, the church website. He, he goes through this list of the stuff that we do, and it go, he goes down to things as basic. And I, I asked for one of these for Christmas, and I actually got it. You know, wearing a tie with ducks on it. You know, all these little things. We just so "What are you looking for by doing that?" And that, again, I think there. Some of us have ears to hear that, and I think others, if you're at the Advent, that probably resonated. Not necessarily the tie with ducks on it, but the the sermon in general. Um, I think maybe in other cases it might not. And there are probably times in my life where that wouldn't have clicked, but that clicked because you you got down to brass tacks and saying something as simple as maybe the tie you pick out at the mall on Saturday, maybe maybe you're trying to identify with something there. You know, I I think in in an age of social media with Facebook, especially, especially anything that's got images, um, you know, Facebook, Pinterest, and all this stuff, there's definitely a desperate need to, to identify. It, it goes beyond, you know, there, there are all kinds of basic, you know, I need a recipe or I need an idea for a party, and, and all that's fine. But I think there's definitely a, a need for um, for identification there. Um, we were driving down the road the other day, um, leaving an antique store, actually, so we were trying to identify with stuff there. Um, don't take a three-year-old to an antique store. Um, um, it will either cost you money or your relationship with your child. Um, he actually picks up a, a teacup, and right as he drops it, I look at, the, I see the price on one of the plates, and the whole set was like $300, and we caught it, and it, we were okay. <laughs> we left the store in a fireman's carry. And <laughs> I don't think we're going to go back until he takes a weekend with the grandparents. Um, 
I get nervous talking about that actually. <laughs> but we're, we're we're leaving and we're listening to to the to the midday sports show on on WJOX and they always do right around lunchtime. They do a list of like six or seven news stories that don't have anything to do with sports. And I wish I'd, I'd got my information, but there's some uh, another study out on social media and it said the amount of friends you have on Facebook is all, often correlates with your high level of narcissism. <laughs> Um, and so don't be offended by that if you have like 8,000 friends or something. But, you know, and I thought, that makes sense. And of course, and I thought, but I block people all the time. So maybe there's some kind of narcissism there that I don't, you know, I'm, I don't want to stay away. So there's... You notified me that I needed more friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's how sad. Yeah. You don't want to go the other way. Right. <laughs> but see, it's feeding you, you know. It's encouraging. I always thought that the number of Facebook friends you had was inversely proportional to the amount of insecurity. That you had. See, I, I think there's probably something to that too. <laughs> Let me ask you this, Matt. Go. You, uh, getting back to the, the thing from the Paul Ball summary where he said the riskiest question is how can it not be justified? Mm-hmm. Do you think it's so risky because if you if you don't arrive at the one and only true answer to that question, all other logical paths lead to complete despair? Or, uh, well, what makes it so risky in, in, in your view, do you think? I mean, that's kind of the way it's Well, I'm, I would certainly answer this in my view. I would not dare to assume the author's original intent yeah, in that I'm sermon. Um, that would be a risky thing. Um, for and speaking just personally, um, subjectively, which is always risky, I think the risk there, and we've kind of hit on this the last couple of weeks, actually, is that it runs the risk, to be repetitive, of undermining whatever it is you do. Because if you, if you start to add... But it needs to, right? It's supposed to, right? That's what the Bible says. Yeah. I mean, that... That makes me very uncomfortable because the, the risk is there that all of a sudden you find yourself in some kind of Ecclesiastes moment where all of a sudden everything's meaningless and vanity. Um, and I don't think that's ultimately the purpose. I mean, you know, Luther answers that real well with his, his ideas about vocation and things like that, where all of a sudden he gives meaning to your work. It's not just meaningless. I, I, think, it, I think it's risky, especially in that middle area that Gil talked about. I think it's risky because your day-to-day all of a sudden gets unpacked. I mean, I, I had a quote from, from Tim Keller a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's in The Reason for God, some of you may remember it, where he, he talked about counseling with, with two women, both of whom had husband problems and had kids who were getting into trouble at school and starting to kind of flirt with legal trouble and, and that sort of thing. And one of the women managed, and she was the one from a little more of a troubled background, not as, not as cleaned up. She was able to kind of forgive her husband and, and have some reconciliation and move on. The more put together woman. He doesn't really deal with, with like where they work financially, but the wife who was a little bit more put together outwardly really had a hard time. And in the end, she kind of breaks down and says, if this fails, then I fail because I don't have anything else. And I think that's where it's, where it's problematic. And I, th- I think that's where, and I don't want to, I don't want to throw stones. I know, I know I live in a glass house. I think it's where a lot of people as believers don't like having this conversation and want to completely shift it into another area and just kind of write it off as kind of pseudo intellectual claptrap or something. Because it le- you don't have to ever deal with this question. They'd much rather deal with, let's get busy doing stuff, which is good. 
but it it'll, it shields you from ever having to to get into this sort of thing. I, I you know, and I, I say that arrogantly a little bit because this is right up my alley. You know, um, th- whether it's the references that, that I've used from books and music and TV shows. I mean, that's the sort of stuff that you know I'm into, that my wife's into, that we we enjoy together. Um, it's kind of, it's always been kind of a natural thing. So. I want to be be generous there, but I do think it allows you. It's risky because it, it starts to undermine your day to day, or at least it brings the day to day in conflict with the gospel. In that respect, it doesn't mean that. It may not mean that anything you do on a day to day basis has to be done away with. I mean, the original passage, and I'll read it here in a minute. The original passage for all this was Philippians three, where Paul talks about counting everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And I said, the way that's so often preached is. You meet Jesus, or Paul met Jesus, or Jesus met Paul in a reformed sense, and all of a sudden Paul had to give up a bunch of stuff. And the way that's usually preached in evangelical circles is when you encounter God, you have to stop doing X, Y, and Z, or start doing X, Y, and Z. And to a point that's absolutely true. I mean, to a point that's absolutely true that I think we can all agree that to some level or another, if you if you come to faith, that you're going to be convicted of sin to one degree or another, and you're going to start wrestling. doesn't mean you win. Certainly you don't win instantly, but you start wrestling with who you are as a sinner, I mean, in conflict with, with the gospel. But to just say, well, you know, in, 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 in real kind of common language, I got saved and I stopped fill-in-the-blank, or I started fill-in-the-blank, really sells the whole thing short, I think. Because all of a sudden, it, it does start to call into question just lots of other stuff. And it doesn't mean anything that's wrong. And uh, an example, I'll borrow from Frank Limehouse, and he said this, um, the first Advent event Lori ever went to was one of the dean's receptions for young adults that he has at Christmas. And sitting in the living room, he made the comment, and it's crystal clear, he said, the danger at Christmas isn't commercialism, it's sentimentality. And I think that's a really good way to frame that dialectic where what we usually hear is the real simple stuff of you know, Christmas and you know use that as a as a small version. Christmas isn't about gifts. Well most people really when it comes down to brass tacks like, okay fine, I don't need another tie. Or I don't need another book. Yes I do. But you know, <laughs> you know we can you, you, we can all kind of deal with it. I mean I I've I've the thought occurred to me the other day how many times when I've been as an adult married with with a child, when I've been given money for Christmas, I don't really remember what I spent it on. I probably just kind of threw it in the till and, and just forgot about it. You know, went towards stuff we needed, or maybe I eventually got something I wanted, but it wasn't like, here's my 50 bucks, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go buy a shirt, or I'm going to go buy some, some records, or whatever. Most of us can deal with that, but the fact that the gospel might creep in and call into question, I hope any family members don't, you know, hear this on the website, but might call into question family time? You know, all the sentimental hugs and kisses at Christmas or at Easter or whenever. <laughs> My wife is laughing. You know, that is, that, I think that's where it's risky. In that it, it all of a sudden says that in Christ, that, that Christ hovers above all of that. Does Christ make the family event better? Yeah. I, I would say so, absolutely. Absolutely. Does the gospel... You know, are, are all these things fine? Yeah, but the gospel makes all of them better, but the gospel ultimately is above those things. And so, 
if our identity is in that, as opposed to all of the other stuff on the ground in the day-to-day. And those, again, things that, by God's common grace, are all wonderful. I mean, they, they really are. And I, I don't, I'm not making a, uh, an ironic joke about family time. I mean, those things are really great. But the gospel is ultimately above that. I think that's why it's risky. Because, you know, and, and I reference Paul's all, I mean, you know, he'll, he'll talk about these kind of real bottoming out moments that, you know, and from time to time I'll hear, a, a, you know, go back and listen to a talk or a comment. And it's like, I can't really relate to that. That's not quite happened to me. Maybe I know somebody who does, but me personally, I, I've never quite been in the fire in that sense. But it is risky when all of a sudden I say, you know, to what extent am I defining myself by where I buy my clothes or where I want to buy my clothes or where I want to eat dinner or where I never want to eat dinner? Like, oh, I'd rather not never eat at Applebee's so that once every three months I can go eat at fill-in-the-blank with such-and-such such chef who was in a magazine. You know, and, and, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You don't have to parse words and, well, you know, let's contextualize it. No, it's, it's okay. Completely okay. Um, but I, I think it's risky because all of a sudden we're, we're in this kind of in-between stage, though, where, where the gospel is always kind of that check where, you know, like, like Jesus said to, to the disciples at the very outset, what, what are you looking for? And if you're looking for a good meal, then go eat wherever you want. I think where the gospel is illuminating to those dark places is when we're doing that. It, it, ultimately, it's just going to show something in us that is... Well, the law is going to show something in us. Let me be careful. Um, going to show something in us that is somehow seeking to, you know, as Calvin said, make an idol. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Because, you know, even if you go back to the Philippians thing there and, and, and the example of St. Paul, when he got knocked off his horse, he didn't forget all the Holy Scripture he ever memorized as a Pharisee. He didn't renounce his Roman citizenship. Right. He, he carried those things on with him in his new life. Right. Ceased to make idols of any of them to the extent that maybe he had before, but still continued to make use of them. But, it, but you know, but the same time with Paul, that is that example. I mean, he completely um, lost any benefit of the identity he had as a, as a, you know, extremely observant Jew. You know, and and so all that he had built his career for to that point uh, became uh, something that he was rejected by everybody for, and, and not only the the Jews that he had been the hero of, but the Christians who suspected that he wasn't sincere. And uh, you know, I knew a lawyer one time who said, "I'm dangerous because I'm not afraid to lose." And I think that you can that can be an arrogant sort of worldly thing. But I think for Christians, it can be a deeply gospel thing because you, you've you lost everything already, and, and yet it frees you up, you know, that you've lost it all to God. And so God is there. He's going to take care of you. So it frees you up so that you're very dangerous in this world in some ways right. because you're a free person. Right. On the point of why and how we do things, um, there's a great quote from um, by J.D. Salinger 
in Franny and Zooey, where he, he wrestles with this topic a little bit of, and really it's the whole point of the book, uh, that what we do ultimately is an attempt to measure up. Um, now, I think you'd be, you have to be cautious. I think there's, there's a, a, a word of caution, I think, in, in, in his writing that we don't confuse Christ with whatever we're using as a stand-in for Christ. But that understanding what we're ultimately, the, the affection we're ultimately seeking is from God. Um, so if you've read Franny and Zooey, this will sound familiar, but I'll read this real quick. This is, this is the end of the book. Zooey um, is the brother, Franny is the sister. No, Franny's the brother, Zooey's the sister. Right? right? Anybody read it? Nobody's read it? Oh, yeah, yeah, y'all get, go and read it. It's great. Um, Franny is the sister, Zooey is the brother, older brother. Um, Franny, little sister, is, is in college, kind of having a, a breakdown psychologically. Francis? Yeah, she's, yeah. Okay. Um, if, if you know Salinger, other than Catcher in the Rye, all of his stuff revolves around a series, uh, not series a, a group of siblings who were kind of these child prodigies, the Glass family, um, who'd been on a TV show. All right. Um, um, very similar to the Royal Tenenbaums, the, the, the Wes Anderson movie. Um, they'd all been on the TV show together in the 50s um, called Wise Child. And so that kind of gives you a little background that they'd always been on the show to kind of prove how smart they were. Okay, so kind of early 50s game show. I remember about the fifth time I ever went on Wise Child, Zooey tells Franny over the phone. I subbed for Walt a few times when he was in a cast. Remember when he was in a cast? Anyway, I started complaining one night before the broadcast. Had to, had to edit that. Seymour told me to shine my shoes just as I was going out the door with Waker. I was furious. The studio audience were all morons. The announcer was a moron. The sponsors were morons. And I just damn well wasn't going to shine my shoes for them, I told Seymour. I said they couldn't see them anyway where we sat. He had to shine them anyway. He said to shine them anyway, rather. He said to shine them for the fat lady. I didn't know what he was talking about, but he had a very Seymour look on his face, and so I did it. He never did tell me who the fat lady was, but I shined my shoes for the fat lady every time I ever went on the air again. All the years you and I were on the program together, if you remember. I don't think I missed more than just a couple of times. This terribly clear, clear picture of the fat lady formed in my mind. I had her sitting on this porch all day swatting flies, with her radio going full blast from morning till night. I figured the heat was terrible, and she probably had cancer, and I don't know. Anyway, it seemed clear why Seymour wanted me to shine my shoes when I went on the air. It made sense. Franny was standing. She had taken her, f her hand away from her face and, and to hold the phone with two hands. He told me to, she said into the phone. He told me to be funny for the fat lady once. She released one hand from the phone and placed it very briefly on the crown of her head, then went back to holding the phone with both hands. I didn't ever picture her on a porch, but with very, you know, very thick legs, very veiny. I had her in an awful wicker chair. She had cancer too, though, and she had the radio going full blast all day. Mine did too. Yes, 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 all right. Let me tell you something now, buddy. Are you listening? Franny, looking extremely tense, nodded. I don't care where an actor acts. It can be in summer stock. It can be over a radio. It can be over television. It can be in a Broadway theater, complete with the most fashionable, most well-fed, most sunburned-looking audience you can imagine. But I'll tell you a terrible secret. Are you listening to me? There isn't anyone out there who isn't Seymour's fat lady. That includes your professor Tupper buddy and all his cousins by the dozens. There isn't anyone anywhere that isn't Seymour's fat lady. Don't you know that? Don't you know that secret yet? And don't you know? Listen to me now. Don't you know who the fat lady really is? Ah, buddy, ah, buddy. It's Christ himself. Christ himself, buddy. 
For joy, apparently, it was all Franny could do to hold the phone, even with both hands. For a foolish half-minute or so, there were no other words, no further speech. Then, I can't talk anymore, buddy. Sound of a phone being replaced and its catch followed. Franny took in her breath slightly, but continued to hold the phone to her ear. A dial tone, of course, followed the formal break in the connection. She appeared to find it extraordinarily beautiful to listen to, rather as if it were the best possible substitute for the primordial silence itself. But she seemed to know, too, when to stop listening to it, as if all of what little or much wisdom there is in the world were suddenly hers. When she had replaced the phone, she seemed to know just what to do next, too. She cleared away the smoking things, then drew back the cotton bedspread from the bed she had been sitting on, took off her slippers, and got into the bed. For some minutes, before she fell into a deep, dreamless sleep, she just lay quiet, smiling at the ceiling. Any, anything on that? I, I, I don't, again, I, I think there's always a word of caution there that we don't confuse the stand-in with the real thing. Um, what Robert Capon calls in his book on cooking, Ten Fiddles, um, and he's got this whole chapter on, on bad cooking utensils, and he makes a spiritual, spiritual analogy there, confusing the, the fake thing with the real thing. So I don't ever think we should do that, but I think what we can do, channeling back to, to Jesus' question to the disciples, what are you looking for? That when we're shining our shoes for the fat lady, that ultimately th- that is an attempt to measure up, to be justified, to, to be to have a sense of righteousness and to, to have it earned. But what we, what we know from the scriptures, what we know from the gospel, is that that righteousness is only imputed to us and is only given to us because it is not ours in the first place. It was um, looking towards Easter in two weeks. It was earned by Christ on the cross and given to us freely and graciously. Um, and so, um, if there are any other thoughts, so I'll pull up it and bring a real Bible. So, the ESV has a great app, by the way. Um, <laughs> yes. From Matthew chapter 22, parable of the wedding feast. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Um, there's another version of that parable in Luke 14, and, and Robert Cavan talks about both of those uh, in his book on the parables. I think the Luke one is the parable of grace. He refers to this one as the parable of judgment. But 
I like this from a gray standpoint because there is the notion there that you can't, you're not getting in on your own on your own terms, and your own righteousness and our own justification. All the shoe shining for the fat lady we could do, or in the case of our hippie friends, or in the case of Hemingway, all of the standards, however noble, well, not in the hippie sense, but however noble they may seem, ultimately simply won't avail us. But by Christ's imputation, we have a, a, um, a marvelous welcome and a great feast. And that that justification then, as, as was, was mentioned earlier, then opens us up and liberates us and frees us to be completely dangerous. And so, quick little video clip, but any, any thoughts before we go? And we're running a little low on time. And I'm not going to belabor the gospel point. I'm just going to kind of leave it there. Um, that I'd rather spend a little bit more time prattling on about our justification and, and how that leads us 8,000 different directions away from where we ought to be. But know that we're ultimately justified simply in, in Christ. And that when we see that our failed justification and all of that loss turns us into um, the poor and the blind and the crippled and the lame that the master of the feast ultimately brings into the, to the reception hall, that that's where we're welcome. So to close this out, um, quick song by Tom Waits. Um, it is essentially a gospel song um, called Come On Up to the House. Um, and I'll kind of not say much more about it than that. It's, it's pretty self-explanatory. So it's that, and I'll grab the lights. Okay, well, um, I, don't, you know, I don't know where Waits is spiritually, um, if you're familiar with Tom Waits at all. Um, a lot of the songs have been covered over the years. Um, his versions are always better, uh, I think. Um, he's, he's writing in, the, in, in an American musical tradition, very well versed in, in American music. Um, and it's an invitation to leave yourself and, and come on up to a party. Um, there's a sense of... of um, it's very frivolous. I mean, there, it's very raucous. Um, but I think, again, in the spirit of, of someone like Robert Capon, um, I think that's what the gospel invitation ultimately is, um, to, to leave behind all of our own attempts at self-worth and self-congratulation and to, to enter, into, enter into God's peace and God's rest and, and to a, a very liberating celebration so that in, in two weeks on Easter Sunday when we sing Welcome, Happy Morning, um, that invitation is, is there. Um, and, and for the believer, it's, it's an invitation that we answer daily, I think. Um, it's not a one-and-done scenario when you're seven years old. Instead, it's, um, it is something that we can essentially preach to ourselves um, as a means of confronting that loss on a, on a daily basis. So, we good? Thank you.
Any any closing thoughts before we go? Perfect. It's written on a naked body. <laughs> yeah. I was I was I, I told I, I've listened to Tom Waits for a long time and I can understand what he says, but I think sometimes listening to someone like that, it's like listening to your own children. You know what they're saying, but it, you're not sure anybody else does. And I was worried that I wouldn't find any, or worried that if I found anything with the lyrics, it'd just be typed, flashing lyrics. But I thought that was that was pretty great. So, well, I will close this with a prayer, and we'll be good. Lord, we do give you thanks that um, in you we have a perfectly clean identity. Thank you for the liberation of the gospel, and that we would live in that daily. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen.